Welcome to the latest podcast from the University of Exeter Business School. Today we are talking to Professor Ian Bateman about the concept of natural capital and in particular a framework that himself and colleagues have developed to help leaders make better and more sustainable decisions. Ian is one of the directors at the Land, Environment, Economics and Policy Institute within the Business School. Ian, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. First question in, an obvious one for for people listening, how would you define natural capital? Well, I'd start off by saying in a way, don't get too worried about the actual terms. I've been doing this for about 30 years now, and the terminology has changed numerous times. What this fundamentally refers to is the relationship between the natural environment, the economy, and people's well-being. And it doesn't matter what terminology is flavour of the week, that environment is absolutely crucial to our sustained well-being. Nevertheless, the natural capital concept is pretty useful. So what do I mean by it? Well, let's actually start with the second word, capital. A capital asset is any resource that has the capacity to deliver flows of services that improve people's well-being. That's a lot of big words. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the idea of money in the bank. That's some capital. And that capital stock delivers a flow of interest to whoever owns the account. And obviously that can be used to improve their well-being. And this concept can also be applied to the natural environment. So you have things like, for example, fish stocks. That's a, a natural capital stock. It's natural because the natural world uh, makes it all on its own. We don't have to pay for it. Fantastic. Best investment you can imagine, really. It's a stock because it is literally a group of fish and it produces a flow of services every year in terms of new fish that we can catch, providing, of course, we don't drive that stock to extinction. Now, there is one other thing that you have to think about when you're considering that flow right the way through to human well-being. Nature never put a meal on my plate. It's a combination of capitals. Okay, so almost every good you can think of is a combination of natural capital here, flows from fish stocks, maybe some human capital, labour of the fishermen, and also some technology associated with actually catching those fish. And it's this combination of these different capitals that actually delivers human well-being. The problem is, unfortunately, that we have tended to treat nature's capital as if it's infinite and free. And unfortunately, that has led to us over-exploiting that capital beyond the levels that you should be doing for sustainable well-being. Has this approach developed alongside everyone's greater awareness of sustainability in the environment? So has that been developed alongside that? And I guess maybe obvious question, what, why is this so important now? Yes, it has indeed developed alongside it. Um, and what it's really been developed as a result of is, is the need to take those concerns about sustainability and turn them into practical change. Everybody's worried about the future of the planet. Worrying isn't actually going to change anything. We actually need to get it into the decision making process. And that is why it is so important. The ability for 
science of every type, so natural science, physical science, economic science, social science, that sort of stuff, to help inform policy and business decision making so that we bring the importance of the environment into those decisions is absolutely crucial. If we don't do this, then we are unfortunately heading for, at very best, a period of much lower well-being than is necessary. And what we're trying to do is avoid that and, of course, avoid more sort of apocalyptic possibilities. What are the existing approaches to measuring natural capital um, and what are some of the issues with that? Well, I want to start with a, a really fundamental issue which drives all this, and that is we are this one little planet we have one external influence which is the sun bringing energy in and that's it the planet isn't getting any bigger so we have limited resources and this means that there will always be trade-offs whatever decisions we make have consequences for other decisions both now and in the future we can't do everything over here and everything over there so there's always going to be trade-offs so that's why we need to think about measuring natural capital you can imagine when there was six million people in the entire world you didn't really need to worry about this because natural capital was effectively infinite Now, it very, very definitely is not. You know, we're heading towards 9, 10 billion people on the planet. We are in a situation where we're driving certain resources, for example, climate resources, because that's a natural capital as well, actually to the edge of pretty fundamental change. So we need to do something about it. How do we do it? Well, the first thing is we need to measure, we need to quantify things. The problem is that all these different types of natural capital and the services they provide come in a myriad of natural units. So tons of carbon and micrograms per litre of water pollution and number of visitors to recreational spots, that sort of stuff. The problem is those units are what's called non-commensurate. You can't compare them. How many tonnes of carbon is worth 100 visits to a site of landscape wonder? I don't know. You have to convert it into a common unit. What is that unit? You need a unit that's related to well-being, related to the change in life satisfaction, if you like, that people enjoy from it. Unfortunately, there is no perfect unit. There really isn't. So what economists have attempted to do is to see whether we can use money as just a measuring rod to try and work out what the true value, what the change in well-being of a change in provision of, for example, an improvement in water quality is compared to, uh, say, a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, so these are These are difficult things to compare against each other. What I would say is that the use of money units is the least worst approach. It's not a good approach. It's really not. There's loads of difficulties with doing this. But, and I think Churchill once said a similar thing about democracy, it's better than all the alternatives. And that is, sadly, the best we can do in justifying why we do this. It's better than all the alternatives. And the framework that you've been working on, so what are some of the advantages of the framework in in terms of how to measure this natural capital? There's three big elements to it. Sustainability, efficiency, 
and equity. So on sustainability, we can't allow decisions which will degrade natural capital stocks beyond sustainable levels. So allowing us to increase fishing efforts to the point that we actually send fish extinct is not sustainable. Similarly with climate, using the natural environment as a receptacle for air pollution is not acceptable once you get to a level of climate change above well, there's debate about it, one and a half, two degrees, that, that sort of stuff. So the first thing is that sustaining stocks. It's not an easy cutoff point. For example, using that climate analogy, going back to Stone Age levels of emissions and temperature would probably entail going back to Stone Age levels of health provision. You know, so we have to be very careful about the trade-offs here. But Going to sort of three degrees is similarly unacceptable in terms of the impact it has. So that's sustainability. Second thing, efficiency. And the rules here are pretty clear. First of all, everything matters. Count everything. If you're going to make a change, count all the beneficial sides to it. Count all of the cost sides to it. Doesn't matter if those costs and benefits have market prices on them or not. They all have to be counted. Another aspect to this, though, is there's some elements that are very difficult to then turn into money. Some things you can turn into money quite robustly. If you can't, and the one element I would say is at the moment beyond our ability to robustly value is biodiversity, continued existence of species, then you have to do other things. Fortunately, you can. You can impose constraints on decisions which say we're not going to allow decisions that send species extinct or something a bit more precautionary. We're going to enforce that every decision has to lead to a net gain in biodiversity. And a final element of this efficiency argument is consider alternatives. Don't just look at your pet investment, work out the benefits and costs, and because you found that benefits are bigger than costs, think that's the best thing. It might not be. There might be better alternatives. And the final element of this is equity. Think about the distribution of those benefits and costs, because it is unacceptable to actually, you know, it's, it's socially unacceptable, it's not just me saying this, to actually load costs onto the disadvantaged in society so as to facilitate increased benefits. So those three elements, bring them all together, that makes the natural capital framework for decision making. So what are some of the implications of that then for particularly policymakers and government in terms of how they measure natural capital, but more importantly, how do they use that or how should they yeah. use that in their decision making? Because obviously the decisions they make affect us all. Yeah, well, if they follow these rules, and I'm glad to say that increasingly governments are following this approach, we should be able to generate an economy which is truly sustainable in the real sense of the word it can be sustained long term into the future that makes better use of resources and that actually tries to address inequality in the world one of the more basic things that people have to do in this is actually go out and measure they have to measure the changes 
that their policies or their proposed investments will or are already having upon natural capital and the flows that it provides. Don't attempt to value things that you haven't physically measured. I, I, I have in my career been asked to do exactly that. I won't say which organisation it, it was, but you've got to work out what the physical changes are. And this does require a degree of integration across different disciplines that probably maps out the real research frontier in the future. I'd go as far as to say that actually the real frontier discoveries of the present century will not be in physics or in economics or in biology or any of that. The real frontier innovations will be across these disciplines. This is where the new frontier really is. And that's also the area that is going to deliver the biggest impact in terms of changing and improving people's lives. Similar to that, then, if you look at the benefits of integrating natural capital into decision making, how would you say it works at the uh, level of society, the level of organisations and governments and the level of individuals? How do those three different levels integrate and what are the benefits for each of those? Well, the social benefits, as I hope I've illustrated here, are absolutely huge. It's not really an exaggeration to say that the ultimate social benefit is the avoidance of catastrophe a pretty major catastrophe. I'm not claiming that it is actually the apocalypse, that sort of stuff, but certainly life-changing alterations in well-being for large portions of society in every country around the world, including the UK. We won't be the most badly affected, and that's a mix of history and pure geographical luck that we don't happen to be in some of the most vulnerable areas. But even here, those effects will be huge. So the benefits of this integration of society are absolutely huge. Now, when you come down to the business and organisational level, that often, I think, is portrayed in a rather idealistic and unrealistic way. You know, I've heard a lot of colleagues talking about how fantastic corporate social responsibility is, how all we need to do is to tell businesses what the environmental impact of their activities is, and then uh, then they'll go off and change that. Not necessarily at all. That's not actually what businesses do. Ultimately, businesses are there uh, to make money. And I think it's very ineffective to pretend that that's not the case. That is what businesses are there for. What you can do is identify for a sizable chunk of businesses how they could actually make more money out of a knowledge of how uh, the natural environment works, a knowledge of the potential risks to their businesses of inaction and the benefits of action. So that, I think, is true. But we can't take the risk of delivering what is one of the most important changes to society and the future just on the basis that if we tell people they'll change what they do, some companies will still be better off carrying out degrading activities. What do we do about that? Well, we either let them get on with it or, which I much prefer, we do have to go back to some pretty old fashioned policy with regards to this regulations. 
those sort of things. So it's it's got to be a mix, but it's got to be an eyes wide open mix where we say we know that there are businesses out there that want to do the right thing. There are some businesses that that don't. But let's find a solution that works even when businesses don't want to do the right thing, because then the voluntary action of those that uh, want to improve things will add on top of that. And you can always see that with regard to individuals as well. There will be some individuals that will think, well, I'm better off not changing to renewable fuels or, or something like that. Although I'm glad to say that's increasingly not true anymore. And therefore, I'm not going to do it. If you only rely on people being good, I think that's far too risky. I think what you've got to do is actually make the good thing, the socially good thing, the environmentally good thing, the cheap thing, the easy thing, the default thing. If you do that, then I think the additional good activities and voluntary activities that most people want to do will will simply add on top of that. And I guess my final question is taking that point, if we look at this issue, it is clearly a global issue. What are the steps that are needed then to ensure that this measurement, this kind of decision making is actually carried out at a global level? Because obviously, you know, climate change and all this doesn't respect national boundaries. So how do we get this working globally? That's a very good question. And I've kind of changed my views on this. I'm actually much more optimistic than I used to be. Why was I pessimistic? Well, because tale of two cities not London and Paris, but Kyoto and Montreal. Montreal is where they signed the protocol that actually got rid of ozone-destroying chemicals. Absolutely essential that that was done because if you destroy the ozone layer, we all die. And what's more, we all die now. You know, we're not talking about future generations. We're all saying you get rid of the ozone layer and really within about 10 years, you're pretty pretty likely to get cancer so nobody really wants that do they so there you've got this very big incentive to cooperate sufficient countries came together to actually force other countries to step in line through basically trade bans that sort of stuff kyoto and the first big attempt to try and extend this approach to greenhouse gases and climate change really failed. Why did it fail? Well, because carrying on emitting greenhouse gases, it's, I'm going to be all right, basically. At least that was the feeling at at the time. You know, really, that's a problem for future me and actually even more uh, the next uh, generation. Why I feel a bit more um, encouraged is that I do think that there is more and more acceptance that the population actually are worried about their own lives and the impact that climate change might have on it. So it's no longer just a nice thing to do for the future people can see climate's changing. You know, um, you're about the same age as me. The winters that we get now are nothing like the winters when I was a kid. So people see that change and they actually begin to believe it's happening. And that has translated itself into more of an impetus to do something about this. And nicely, it is being helped by good old fashioned profit and economics again because what you've seen is that initial seed corn investment in things like renewables in particular now beginning to pay off with massive economies of scale such that 
I would say within this decade, you are actually going to find renewable energy bills cheaper than non-renewable energy bills. And once you've got that, you've got that really nice combination of people wanting to do the right thing, governments picking up on this and beginning to work in cooperation, and actually it also being a self-interested thing as well. And that's why I actually feel a bit more optimistic about this being adopted more and more globally. And that is indeed what you're seeing with the natural capital approach. It is getting more internationally applied. In on that hopefully very optimistic note, that's a great place to finish. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me.